Okay, here we go. Uh, I hope we're off and running at least and everything. We're trying to work some stuff out still around here because we uh, don't have a lot of time to do it during the week. So, okay, where am I? February 6, 2022. I should say, say right off the bat here that we have this high religious pagan holiday, Baal, Supur Baal, on the 13th of February. And so we traditionally don't compete with, uh, with paganism on, uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, that's a kind of a joke. February 6, 2022, lecture discussion number 162 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis 1 through 3. That's where we are. Thus far, and of course that's with respect to the two previous uh, Sundays, lectures number 160, 161 uh, that I have done, uh, I, the highly trained religious professional, I've thrown out a lot of uh, not insignificant sum of questions. How's that for euphemism? And as usual, being the HTRP, I have not exactly provided complete answers to anything. Uh, zip, zero, nada. Zero being a concept, not an integer. As you know, to be fair, which is philanthropic, to be th- philanthropic, the holder of the most holy dry erase marker, me, I did allude in the last couple of weeks, I did insinuate where the solutions might be found to all the questions that I have asked, what they may encompass, but also um, I had to be true to my discursive uh, preparatory method, and that means uh, lots of dancing around and very few defining incidents here. Uh, What I'm doing, once again, what I'm doing is I'm trying to get the vast internet audience uh, to fend for yourselves, to fend for themselves. Essentially, I'm attempting to promote an avalanche of inductive reasoning. That's what I've been trying to do my whole career, and I'm still trying to do it. Sometimes that happens. I get this fantastic understanding that people figure things out, and that's wonderful. But mostly I get black, blah, 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 blank stares, silence, and a smattering of booze. And that's okay. I remain Undeterred, I'm endeavoring to persevere. I believe that it's best for you to figure it out without my my giving it to you. I want you to start to think like they, the ones who were selected to write this Bible think. Last week, probably the central point that I made, yay a point, was this crucial dust question, or what I'm going to start calling now the mystery of the dust. This is, this is, I've said it's crucial, I've said it's critical, I think it is incredibly important. And if you remember, and no one ever remembers, and that's okay too, the one week interval that we have here is a fantastic amnesiac. So I know nobody remembers from one week to the other, but maybe somebody remembers, and, uh, and that somewhere, there's one guy or one lady remembers, and so I, I will use the phrase, if you remember, prophylactically, just in case there's somebody out there that actually does. Okay, I'm rambling now, aren't I? Let's find my position. There it is. This critical dust issue, why did God make the bodies of mankind and animals from the same dust, the mystery of the same dust? That's my position. I think it is the one that dominates, and there is no other position that can reach the level that this one reaches by adding that same, it becomes extremely interesting and valuable and important. 
So why did God make the bodies of mankind and animals from the exact same dust? Why did he gather all of that dust together? How much did he get? That's Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 20, 18 through 20. For those of you who are joining us maybe for the first time. And obviously, this is the natural progression from the primary dust question, which is why did God use dust in the first place at all? He didn't need to use dust, but he did. And why did he? What is he trying to do? What is he saying? Where was this dust? How did the dust become dust? You heard me say a couple weeks ago or even last week, dust is evidence of entropy. How did entropy occur on the earth in Genesis 2-7? Why did entropy occur? What is the implications of the presence of entropy on the earth at Genesis 2-7? How's that for a question? And I attempted to cement the matter by rightfully adding Exodus 8-19. Was that last week? I hope it was because I don't remember. Okay, good. Let me, let me give you 8-19 of Exodus. And said the magicians to Pharaoh, the finger of Elohim, that... That's the Hebrew literally. Exodus 8, 17 through 19. Is the finger of God bringing forth lice? I'm sorry. Is the finger of God bringing forth lice from the dust? And remember that word. If anybody remembers, we're talking about the Hebrew. And I'm not good at Hebrew. Christ declared it is his finger that, that was the finger that brought the lice out of the dust. That's him. He did that, uh, as you know, in John 8, 6 and 8, 8. He is the finger of the Elohim. The, is the finger of God that's the Elohim. Is the finger, the, the finger of the Elohim is the finger of Jesus Christ. Again, John 8, 6 and 8, 8. And lastly, in lecture 161, the John eleven twenty five proclamation of Christ is brought forward. And, and that's part of all of this. The, I am ego, I am the ego me, the I amness. He says it over and over again. He's beating us with it almost, it seems like, because we don't seem to understand. He is the being. He's, he's the one that gives everything being. You, there's no being that comes out of him. Or I'm sorry, there's no being that comes in this except out of him. He's the existent one. And he says that he is the resurrector. What's he resurrecting? He says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. When he says resurrection, what does he mean? What is he resurrecting? Well, the answer is obviously he's resurrecting bodies. And where are those bodies? Those bodies are in the dust. So he resurrects from the dust and he is the breath of the spirit of life. He, in other words, we, we know that, that our bodies came from dust. We know that they returned to dust, but they also now, we're being told, is they resurrect from that dust. So we have, we have this element, the bodies, the same dust. We have the bodies came from dust. The bodies returned to dust. And then he says, I am the resurrector. I am the resurrection and the life. And so that means they resurrect From the dust. That they return to. Oops. 
So the point for today is that when he says, I am the resurrection, I am the resurrector, I am the one that resurrects everything that lives from the dust. That dust is right here. Boom, boom, and boom. That's why she keeps saying the mystery of the dust is so important to us. We have to understand. You don't have to. I hope that we do understand what God is saying when he is doing something. He never just does something. Everything that he Every act that he has has deeper layers of, of meaning. And so now we have the most, this, all of this raises the most obvious of the obvious questions. How does the dust of the earth and the breath of the spirit of life blend together? Because he says, I am the breath of the spirit of life. I am the resurrection and the breath of the spirit of life. Now he says, I am resurrection and the life, but the life is the breath is his breath. He's the being one. So how does the dust of the earth and the breath of the spirit of, of life blend together? How do they connect? Why did Christ himself place them side by side in, in John 11.25? Ah, here's a disclaimer. The infinite triune Godhead will never be understood by us. We are finite beings. We'll never get it. We accept that God has described himself with this truth of triunity. And we attempt to conceive how the triunity functions, but it's not within our ability. How the triune God said, how the, gosh, I can't even talk today. How the triune Godhead is one and three. And and may not be the right word here, but that's all I got because I'm a human being. Three that are all the one. If that makes any sense, Whoa, you're at the top of the class. Three that are all the one. Each of the one is all. And if that, again, if that makes sense, and it probably doesn't, that's the best I got. Jesus Christ announces in John 11.25 that since he made the bodies of mankind and animals from the dust and breathed the breath of, of the spirit of life into the bodies, something he reveals again at John 8.6, 8.8, 8, and John 20.22 20, to his apostles. He does it, John 20, 22, he reveals that he is that breath of life at Genesis 2, 7. To the apostles, which by the way, as you know, is, is the, that's in the definition of apostle. I have seen lots of people declare themselves to be apostles. They still do it. You are an apostle if Christ has breathed on you. Then you are an apostle. Christ himself has breathed on you, then that's your, one of your definitions of apostle. There's other elements of the definition of apostle. None of the people today that I have ever seen declare themselves to be an apostle has fulfilled a single one of these requirements. They all are faking it. Because one, it makes people swoon over them. Be very suspicious of people that want to tell you that they're one of the original 12 apostles of Christ. I, I understand what they're trying to do. I've got all of those scriptures figured out. They'll say, well, it's one of the offices of the church. Well, yes, it is. And there was 12 of them. Just as if there's 12 tribes. <sighs> In any event, never mind. Probably lost 15 people right there. That leaves me down to what? Negative four. Ah. <sighs> And, and let me say this, uh, you have to assume that Paul was breathed on by Christ in Acts 9. For those of you who say, well, well, Paul wasn't breathed on by Christ. He never said he was, but he did. But Paul was told he was an apostle. The only way he could be an apostle 
he has to fulfill all the requirements that God gives for an apostle. One of those is to have physical access to Christ, to have seen him physically, to have heard him physically. The other, of course, is being breathed on by Christ. But anyway, i got to focus. The bodies of living beings come from the dust, and upon death of the, the, of the body, those bodies return to dust. And Jesus Christ put his finger in the dust of John 8 and resurrects the bodies, He's the one who breathed into the body of Adam and therefore made Adam a living being. That means Adam has immortality. He's eternal. He connects resurrection by the breath of the spirit of life. I'm sorry, connects resurrection by the dust with the breath of the spirit of life. So again, how do they connect? What's the truth here? Why does he put resurrection, dust, and the spirit of life together? What's being revealed? Who needs to know this? By who? I mean who? He's, he's saying these things for somebody who is listening. Who is listening to him? And if they need to know it, why do they need to witness this process? What is the meaning of 1 Corinthians 4.9? How does 1 Corinthians 4.9 fit into all of this? There. Take a breath. What do you mean 1 Corinthians 4.9? What has that got to do with anything? Highly trained religious professional. Paul, as the instrument of the Holy Spirit, writes, For I think God has displayed us. God has displayed us. And he's talking about the apostles. And he says, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, last. Last. That, of course, is the key word to all of this. We have been made a theater or a spectacle to the world, Paul says, both to angels and to men. So, let me repeat it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.9, through the Holy Spirit, For I think God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a theater spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. God wants the angels and the men to see the condemnation unto death of the apostles. There's another thing you have to have in order to be an apostle. Just saying, I'll stop. The key word in this verse, as I've said, is last. The apostles have been brought out last. The Greek word for theater, theatron, is a reference to the Roman amphitheater, the Roman arena. Paul is saying that he and the rest of the apostles are analogous to those who are brought out last. Well, who's brought out last? It's the grand finale, so to speak, of the amphitheater. So the apostles are the grand finale. So you see, if you if you study Roman entertainment, for lack of a better euphemism than that, you know that the uh, the in the morning the beginning acts, if you will, the ones that entertain all of these hundreds and thousands of people, the morning gladiators, for example, they were usually imprisoned criminals, and and they were given clemency through combat. They were told the winner. It's clemency. The loser, of course, is dead. Doesn't get clemency. So pardoned. If you won your fight, you were pardoned. In other words, the winners were allowed to live for a time. And the, uh, 
And the losers, of course, were slain. And the combatants were um, always armored and outfitted with weaponry. And they fought for their lives against others of their situation and against animals who were also put in that situation. Fight or die. If you win, you live. If you, if you don't, you die. All of that to the morbid, morbid delight of the Roman population that was watching this spectacle. Well, Paul is saying that is what's going, we are the last group and we're being the, the people or the ones that are watching us are angels primarily, overwhelmingly first and men as well. But angels are watching us and we think that, I think Paul said that God is doing this on purpose. Paul is relating this to his fate, this fate of the amphitheater to him and that of the other apostles. They, they would be the afternoon presentation. They would be the grand finale. And those that were last in the Roman amphitheater were stripped naked, every one of them. They were exposed. They got no armor. They got no weapons. And their deaths were certain, therefore, and horrifying. It was a mass butchery of the defenseless in front of a screaming, roaring crowd, all delighted to see the death of the last group. They demanded, demanding death. And Paul reveals that this, what happened to him and the apostles, the death of the, of the apostles is for the angels. Now the obvious question is, is why does God want to see the death of, want the angels to see the death of the apostles? Now humanity as well, but he wants the angels to see it. It's not just human seeing, which, what we would expect. This is for the angels. They're head most in this to, to mankind. And that leads to questions. Why are the angels watching the slaughter, the murder of the apostles? Well, it is the general consensus that both the faithful angels and the demonic angels of Satan are watching. And there's some disagreement about that. Some people say, no, it's just the faithful angels. But I, I think, no, all angels are watching this. And I'm of that opinion because of Job 1, 6 through 2, 10. Job 1, 6 through 2, 10 is a foundation that makes the best case of the issue, in my opinion. The angels of God, both fallen and unfallen, both fallen and faithful, assembled to watch Satan attack Job. They, 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 they gathered to watch Satan argue. They, his lie, he brought his lie directly to the face of God. Accused, he accused God of lying, Genesis 3, 4. So that happens. We get to see that played out for us with Job. Job, in a sense, is similar to the apostles, but Job does not die. So I side with the view that says the entire host of angels gathers again to watch the apostles go to their deaths. Let's rerun their question. Why do the angels have to see the, the apostles go to their death? And just to say this, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 provide strength to my position also. The entire angelic host gathered to watch Christ and Satan have this intellectual combatant, this combat, if you will. Okay, so what's the point? Why? Well, what we got to do is gather more information because we can't get it right now. And we can start with Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 gives us a lot of information, starting at verse 8. And I have both the New King James and I have uh, the Old King James, and I'm going to read the Old King James mostly. I, I'll blend them kind of together. Unto me, who am less 
then the least of all saints is this grace given. That's Paul writing that. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given. So grace has been given to Paul. Now remember, Paul is a Pharisee who hunted and killed Christians. Uh, He's given grace. He's given mercy. He's given salvation. And as you know, grace has to be given for free. We covered that uh, again last week. It is impossible to earn, to pay for the blood of Christ. Hopefully everyone listening knows why this is so. If you don't, just ask yourself, how much does a, a drop of blood of Christ's, Christ's blood, how much does that cost? But anyway, he goes on to say, Unto me who is less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, what are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Why are there riches of Christ? What are the riches of Christ? And, how, and, and why are they unsearchable? Beyond reach. They are beyond reach because grace must be given. Why must grace be given? Because Christ is infinite. Cannot be earned. So this unsearchable refers to and gives us the information of the infinity of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the, of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. The literal Greek, literal Greek is what is the administration of the mystery having been hidden from the ages in God? And that's, I re, I give you that so that you understand as best as I can do it. The Greek for God being here, used here is Theos. T-H-E-O-S. And that is what the translation, translators of the Septuagint used for Elohim. So it's the us. Elohim is the plural form, the us of Genesis 126 and 322. And we should know that though Elohim is plural, in the majority of cases, the accompanying verb for the Elohim is singular. Most notably at Genesis 1.1. So I have a single verb for a plural name. And that, of course, gives you Deuteronomy 6.4. The us is one. They act as one. That's why the verbs are singular. Okay, where was I? What is this hidden mystery that Paul's talking about? There's a hidden mystery. What is the administration of the, his, of the hidden mystery? Why was it hidden? Who was it hidden from? When is it going to be revealed? And so we read Ephesians uh, 3 some more. Verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Oh, who are the principal, the principalities and powers in heavenly places? Who are they? They're the angels. So there's a hidden mystery that is being administrated and is being administrated to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So that they will see it. So the hidden mystery which was connected to all things being created by Christ is now being attached to the angelic host. Where were all things created by Christ? That would be Genesis. How did he create all things, especially all living things, out of the dust of the earth? Where did the dust of the earth come from? That's entropy. And these, the principalities and powers, shall be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff there. Let's recap it. There is a mystery. There's the wisdom of God. 
There will be a dispensation of this mystery. There's a grand design, if you, if you prefer, that is manifold, which means multi-layered. There's many facets. And Ephesians 3.10 presents an amazing insight into the what? The angelic realm. Specific, specifically what it was that God had considered or has considered. So to rephrase some more, God has a plan for his angelic realm. He's always had a plan for his angelic realm. It's a comprehensive, expansive program or process that only an omniscient, infinite, timeless mind could possibly conceive. And one of the aspects of it is that there's this mystery that he needs the angels or he intends for the angels to find out about it. And he's hidden it from them. But he is revealing it in a manifold design or a multi-layered, faceted design. Now, and one of the aspects of it, just one aspect is for the entire angelic host, faithful and fallen, to witness the brutal executions, the brutal executions of the apostles. So let's add them up. They have Job. They all saw Job. They all saw Christ and Satan in Matthew 4, Luke 4. They all are going to see the executions of the apostles. They all saw the light, the primeval light, strike the earth that was in flood and darkness and bring fantastic amounts of life and vegetation out of nothingness in the sense that nothingness at that time was entropic dust. So I shouldn't say nothingness. As you know, nothingness doesn't exist. There's always been somethingness. Now, obviously, God wants man to see it at the same time. I think the principle extends to the saints. By saints, I mean all of the redeemed, all who reach for the extended hand of Christ. Christ extends his hand of salvation and mercy, and those who, who, who accept him and do not reject the hand. That's what I mean about this principle. Those are the ones that I believe. Uh, those who call out his name, John 2.32. Call out his name, you will be saved. Not John, Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21, Romans 10.13. If you call if you call the name of Christ, you will be saved. It's a guarantee. There is no equivocation. Now, I recognize that people say, no, you can lose your salvation. And we'll deal with that as we go along here. It's just... It just... Again, I'll just say really quickly... If it's possible to lose your salvation, everyone would do it. And we would have a salvation system by which no one is saved. I've said that hundreds of times. And they say, well, I'll be saved. Well, no, you won't. But they all do. And they're very proud of it. I'm one of the saved. I will endure. I'm the one that will be preserved. You're not. You're going to fall away. Not me. I'm going to make it. Well, Paul didn't think he was going to make it. He said, I hope I make it to the end. I hope I endure to the end. I hope I finish the race. If he does not, you have to reconcile every, Joel 2.32, everyone who cries out to Christ will be saved. That's the process. That's the, the guarantee. They shall be resurrected to life, John 11.25. If I am correct... 
then it is the will of God that angels watch the death of the saints as well as the death of the apostles. Now, he wants the angels to see the death of every saved person. You really see that in, the Re- in Revelation, right? If you're saved during the tribulation, what's going to happen to you? You're likely to be executed. You won't take the mark. What will happen to you? You can't eat. You can't, can't go anywhere. It's like, never mind. I almost made a joke that would would probably get me in trouble. (laughs) You can't buy or sell unless you have one of these marks. And if you don't, if you refuse the mark, you will be killed. Could you ever imagine a government telling people, if you refuse to do what we do, we will keep, make it so that you can't buy food, you can't have a job, we'll fire you if you don't do what we want? That would be, who could conceive something like that? It's astonishing. It couldn't possibly happen. Oh, anyway. He wants to see that, he wants the angels to watch the death of the, of the apostles in particular. That's the, he wants to make sure they see that death. But he also wants them to see the death of his saints. That's proved something to them. Remember, this all starts with the lie of Satan, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. That's where it starts. And the angels need to see this, both fallen and unfallen. What is he doing? What is God doing? And hopefully, um, uh, those of you who are listening by whatever means, uh, you've begun to assemble the most obvious of the obvious questions here. And their counterparts, the most implicated of the implications. We should, we, we, we gotta keep asking more why questions. Why has God put the apostles on display for the angelic host? There's the basic start. The answer to this question is, uh, I'll call it the first why or the primable why. The first of the whys. If we get, if we get that why question at least worked out, that's gonna bring us to some of God's reasons. To repeat, we are dealing with what here? An infinite omniscient mind that is outside of time, he conceived this policy, this purpose policy. The immediately the immediate implication is that the angels, all angels, don't know something. And he is revealing a truth to them. They need to learn a truth. So what are the truths? Something is unknown and watching the watching the murdering of the apostles somehow brings clarity to both fallen demons and those angels who remained with God. So he is responding, and that can't be true of an infinite, uh, timeless person, but that's heresy, and I will still, nonetheless, repeat it. He is, if you want to think of it this way, in a humanistic uh, frame of observation, he is responding. This is the response of God, and part of that response is the death of the apostles. In other words, as he did with the forming of the bodies of animals and Adam from the dust, and guess who watched all of that? as he did with the forming of the bodies of animals and Adam from the dust, and breathing into those bodies his breath, the breath of the spirit of life, his breath, Genesis 2, 7, 7, 22, John 20, 22, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. So now God is demonstrating another great truth with the savagery, the barbarity of the slaughtering of Christ's apostles. And of course, as you know, the Christians were put in that same amphitheater, that same arena, and they were eaten and destroyed by animals and by gladiators. 
many, many hundreds of thousands have been persecuted and destroyed. How is it that the dust and the death of the apostles are tied together? How is it that when he makes something out of dust, that is tied to the amphitheater death of the apostles in the sense the amphitheater is there on display. Not all the apostles died in the arena. Some did. So how is the dust and the deaths of the apostles conjoined apostles? How about apostles? How is it that the death of the apostles are conjoined with the dust? So I have two events he makes, if you want to think of it that way, all the angels have to watch him bring light to the darkened world that no one can see. He grabs the dust, if you want to think of it that way. He forms all the bodies of all of these animals, these living beings. He breathes inside of them, and now they become existing, eternal, immortal beings. Every one of them that he's breathed inside, everyone that has the breath of the spirit of life is immortal and is eternal and will never cease to exist. He did that in front of the angels and now he is doing this in front of the angels. He also did Job 1, chapters 1 and 2. He also did Matthew 4, Luke 4, just to give you some examples. And he keeps doing things. Okay, so as for the Roman barbarity, some might say it's inhuman. It was inhuman. But that's not so. It's not so. Murder in a fallen world is normal. That's normal. A fallen human condition is going to murder all day long. That's what human beings do. We're depraved. We are, are desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. We are, we need reconciliation. Just to give you an idea, the leading cause of death worldwide, 42.6 million have died in infanticide, or what we call the abortion industry. And the defense of that is that it's not murder because that is not a person. That's the defense. And so you can't count those deaths. There are more deaths of, of babies than any other death, almost all of them put together. What does God think about that? He says that he hates those who rush to kill the innocent. We have the innocent being killed for money. How do you think God responds to that? Okay, I'll move on. I said many times the question is not why is there evil in the world. There's a tremendous amount of evil. The logical, appropriate question is why is there any goodness at all? Anywhere, anytime. How is it that there is any goodness in this world that is filled to the brim with wickedness? And this, of course, ultimately is demonstrated in the torment, the utter blinding darkness of the Matthew 25:41, where there will be no goodness at all. That's the lake of fire. Revelation 20:10, Revelation 20:13 through 15. Lake of fire. That's the second death, the real death, as opposed to the unreal death. There will. And I should put that on the board. There's real death and there's not real death. Know the difference. Covered that last week. If you're just joining us,
depends on how you define death. You have to define death in the way Christ defines death. And the death that we say is death is not real. The death that he says is death is real. That's the difference. Can't see me. I might have gone off the camera there. It's always good when you can't see me because I have become this... What am I? I'll go look in the mirror. Ah. This has happened to me really fast. Dave is wise. He grows a beard so you can't see what he really looks like. That's smart. Really smart. If he exists, he could be uh, invisible. But again, the, a place of only evil and the earth is becoming is progressing to where there is only evil. When he takes the church out, there will be more evil than there is goodness. There will still be some goodness, but it is getting smaller and smaller. And the personification of only evil is the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41. The real death, the second death. Notice I said blinding darkness, the utter blinding darkness of the lake of fire. Utter darkness, that means zero light. It results in total blindness. If you've got no light at all, then you can't see. You're blind. Your eyes are still there, but you can't see. No information comes through darkness. Darkness eliminates it completely destroys information. And it's forever eternal blindness. And so you have this groping, stumbling blindness, which is Genesis 19.11, where God did that there. Christ struck them with blindness. They couldn't find Lot in his family. Couldn't see. Deep darkness, 1 John 2.11. With well, that said, it's probably an acceptable time to introduce now this wonderful discussion that ends with me being brilliantly right. Therefore, it's my favorite. And that's called the level of hell discussion. Or if you wish, the levels. Levels of hell. And that's a trick question. Or a trick discussion. That's a trick uh, nomenclature. Usually for those who enjoy such controversies as this, this, uh, this discourse will incorporate uh, a very familiar thing that you had to read in high school called the, uh, uh, written by Dante. Effectively, the, the Nine Circles of Hell. Divine Comedy. Did you have to read that? Did you pass the test? Neither did I. Dante thought that Satan, and by extension the Antichrist and the false prophet Abaddon and others of their ilk, they were in the absolute depths of the lake of fire, the center of the lake of fire, if you will. So they they are put in a different place. So he, he decided that there are levels. And the logic displayed in this view, and I should say Dante's nine circles, uh, or his nine levels, has infiltrated into the church. So... What he wrote in the 1300s has made it into the church. Uh, not literally, but its vestiges and its concepts are certainly traceable back to that book. And, and you will see it in almost uh, many, many churches will say that there are levels in hell. And of course, you recognize uh, the purgatory position of the Roman Catholic Church is a level position. So anyway, Dante's uh, rationale was and is that, is that the lake of fire's lowest level was reserved for those who were guilty of what Christ himself said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 13-36. And perhaps the most prominent of those, and those are the seven woes. And it's probably an accident 
that Christ had seven woes. Probably a coincidence. He just picked seven out of his head. Oh, no, I'll just do seven of these. Probably don't, they probably don't fit together and have any accumulative meaning. We can just take them one at a time and say, okay, they're all bad. Let's forget it from there and move on. Nothing to see here, which is what 99% of all churches do. But we will not be doing that. We will be going over the seven woes on February 20th. Those of you who survived that long. Those of you who come back. But probably the most prominent of the seven woes statements by Jesus Christ was Matthew 23, 13. That's the first of the seven woes. And the seven woes, uh, they hold incredible information. And if only we had time today to go over them, but we, we, we do not, and we never have time today. Time, time has us. We don't have time. Time, time has us. But this is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. What are they doing? They're trying to stop people from going to heaven. That's what they're doing. That's the Pharisees. That's what God himself, the creator of all things, the one who breathed spirit of life into man, who breathed it into the animals, he says to them, for you shut up the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven against men. What Christ is saying is that these revered religious leaders, these are these people are very popular, the Pharisees are in Israel at this time. Everyone thinks that these are the holiest men of the entire nation. And, and make no mistake, the Pharisees were powerful and considered to be holy men. And everyone believed that these are the ones that go to heaven. Their destiny was honor in heaven. Christ calls them devourers, devourers of widows, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He calls them full of extortion and sin, calls them whitewashed tombs of death, sons of murderers, brood of vipers and serpents. This is God himself calling them. What are the chances that these are good men? Be very suspicious of religious, pious people. Very suspicious. People who act in a pious manner. Bless you, brother. I bless you. People who say they have power. People who say that they don't sin. Ah, Be very suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Get away from them. If you have a pastor that stands up in front of you and says, I don't sin like you people, get out of his church. And don't don't pass go and collect two hundred dollars. Just run for the exit, because that is Pharisaical. Find out what a Pharisee is and do everything you can to not be one. Okay, God, the Lord God Almighty, Creator of all things, says to the Pharisees a rhetorical question: How can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna or hell? The negative is implied. The Pharisees are doomed. The highest, most religious, most pious. Men in the nation of Israel are doomed because the negative is implied. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Imagine how the people responded to this. Pick some, uh, oh, let's see. I have to go to my Joel Osteen cube in order to get inspiration for what I'm about to say now. Imagine that Christ goes to one of these these huge 
congregational churches, these mega churches, and he goes up on stage and he grabs every staff member and the pastor and he says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? You are a devourer of widows. You're a blind guide who strains out a gnat and swallows a a camel. You're a whitewashed tomb of death. You're You're a son of murderers. What if he did that? That's what he did in Israel. And Matthew 23.15 elaborates on Matthew 23.13. Woe to you. Another woe. How many woes we got? Yes, we have seven and they all fit together. They're amazing. Woe to you. Anytime you see seven, you think of the feast days. You think of the millennial thousand years. There's 7,000 years here that we have to figure out. Seven 1,000 year periods. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel land and sin and sea. Sorry, I wrote sin down here. You, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he has won, you, have, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. That's what Christ says to them. The Pharisees were wicked. They were evil. They were committed to Satan. John 8.44. And Dante placed those people who were willfully murdering, purposely converting their followers to the second death, the real death. Dante puts the real death of Revelation 20, 14, 15. He puts those into the absolute depths of the lake of fire, the bottom level, the utter darkness. There's not a single photon of light there, just like there was in Genesis 1, 3 through 4. Essentially, I've got to watch the time here, and I've lost track. How much time do I have left? Wow, I'm going really fast. I only have 25 more pages to go. I said that joke one time. I got up and I said, well, I've only got another hour here. And a guy got up and left. And I always wanted to track it. You know, I thought it was funny. He thought it was real. Somebody believed me. I want to know his name. I've got to find this guy. But I never found him, and I, I've never forgotten him. And it, uh, it was uh, one of my other great ideas, of course, as you know, was to go ahead and have signs outside in the parking lot that said, "If you give the most money, you get to park closer to the building." And then I'd have signs in the way in the back of the, of the parking lot that said, "Those people who don't pay tithes have to park here." I thought that would be a really good idea, and I wondered if anybody would ever think that it was real. One guy believed me. Okay. Essentially, those in the bottom of the, of the lake of fire, in the bottom level, the darkest level, where they're all blind, that's where Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will be. And the Pharisees will be. And anyone who has done what they have done, because they have done something specific, and it is outlined in Scripture. So, these are those that have knowingly perpetrated treachery against God. What is treachery against God? That's treason. Treachery is really is treason, but we'll stay with treachery. Treachery against God, is, as defined in Scripture, would be one who desires to send as many into condemnation as possible. They search the land and the sea to make one proselyte twice the cell, the son of hell as themselves. They're going around, we're as the church to go and, and preach the gospel so that people will get saved. The Pharisees are lying so that people die in the lake of fire. 
So you see that equal and opposite reaction of, of Isaac Newton, right? They are desiring to send as many into condemnation as possible. Deliberate, calculated deceitfulness for the purpose of inflicting a second death on as, the real death on as many as possible. And we see this at its crest in Revelation 27 through 9 when the released Satan gathers proselytes, proselytes, sorry, numbering in the, as the sands of the sea. Once Satan is released from the abyss, he is able to do the same thing he always has been able to do. He lies so that people will die in the lake of fire. That's what he does. That's what the Pharisees do. That's what the cults do. That's what, that's what all of these non-Christian religions that do not have Christ is. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only resurrection. He's the only life. He's the one that breathed life into all life. He is life itself. He personifies existence. He's, he's the only one. Everything else is a counterfeit. Everything else will end in condemnation. But at the very bottom are the treacherous ones. And again, Satan got a, a number that is an, as equal to the sands of the beach, if you will, all believing they could kill Christ and believing they could kill the saints in the beloved city during at the, at the end of the millennium. And Satan's lie and plan has always been this treacherous, this treasonous thing. And I think we can agree that all of those who are treasonous are deserving of the torment described in Revelation 20.10, Matthew 13.42, Matthew 22.13, and Matthew 25.30. That is the other utter darkness, no photon, not a single photon of light in the lake of fire. They're gnashing of the teeth. There's weeping. We all agree that people who have deliberately sent others to hell knowingly that they were doing it all along, that what they were telling them was a lie. There are huge churches out there that are lying, huge denominations that are lying, and they know they're lying. That's treachery. They're doing it because they want the reward on heaven, but some are doing it because they want people to die. Okay, we have hardly begun to investigate the central issue question. The central issue, though, the, the question that being, are there levels in the Matthew twenty-five, forty-one lake of fire? Is there levels? Yes or no? If there are, why are there? If they're not, why not? The starting line of this subject is the definitions. The terms have got to be defined. They have to be collated. It's not easy to do what we're going to try to do here. You've got to pack a lunch. You've got to bring a blanket, slippers, alarm clock. The same thing you bring every time you come to Cliffside. That's what you've got to have here. And we're so proud of Terry. She's in an easy chair that rocks back and forth, and she's been awake most of the time. It's really impressive. Okay. Let's just give you some examples. What do I have? How is hell described in Scripture. Well, it's Lake of Fire, it's Hades, it's Tartarus, it's the Abyss, it's Sheol, it's Hades, it's Hell. Oh, it's Hades twice. I've left off Hades and then I put it back in there. It's Hell, it's Grave, it's Second Death, it's Cut Off, it's Everlasting Contempt, it's Eternal Judgment, it's Retribution, it's where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, the sea gives up its dead, it's Death and Hades, and it's Gehenna. And Christ himself used Gehenna 11 times. Probably an accident. Seven woes, eleven Gehennas. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's only omniscient God outside of time. He doesn't think clearly sometimes. He just rattles on. That's Christ. 
Why 11? What's 11 mean to him? Why would he say Gehenna 11 times? But the point is, one must identify the differences in all of those terms, as well as the agreements, because they are differences, but there's all, they also amalgamate. So they, they kind of cross over into one another, and you have to figure out which one is which. In other words, who goes where, and why do they go where they go? Because the angels go to Tartarus. What is Tartarus? When do they, when do they go where they go? Where else do they go after where they went is emptied? So all of these things have to be, again, as I said, uh, they have to be collated. And as you've come to expect, there are hundreds of positions on this, on this subject. Hundreds. You can find books everywhere and you can find positions everywhere. So you've got to bring a lot more lunches than you usually do to get yourself through this. So we won't be attacking this today other than to say the varying degrees of punishment in the hell position has support. In other words, that position that says there are varying degrees of the lake of fire. So I have the low lake of fire, the bottom, where Satan and the Antichrist, false prophet and the Pharisees, and all of those who are treacherous with respect to what they have done, treacherous to God, treason, committed treason to God. That's where they are. And there is great darkness there. There's a position that says that's the bottom. There's a lot of evil down there. It's all evil. Nothing but evil. There's nothing else but evil. There's no light. And it's blindness, utter darkness. Now, the position that says there's varying degrees, varying levels, uh, from that, in other words, there is levels where others are at. Now, do you think that's true? Raise your hand if you think that's true. I'm looking. Nobody raised their hand here. One person raises his hand. The other person is wise and does not raise her hand. She has learned whatever you do, don't raise your hand at cliffside. Ever, ever, ever. Okay. But this position, the level position or the levels position, the varying degrees of punishment in hell position has support. But again, you have to decide which hell is being referenced. When you're trying to figure this out. And Revelation 20, 11, 15 is offered all the time as the supporting statement. There is judgment, is what it says. There is judgment. There's books that are opened here. So this is the great white throne. And they were judged, it says. 20, uh, 11 through 15. They were judged, each one according to his works. So I have judgment. Tied to works. Is there judgment tied to grace? And the answer is yes. There is. This one is being described as each according to his works. What he has done, you'll see it translated. So there's judgment according to what he has done. Well, what did he do? He's in the great white throne judgment, so he definitely rejected Christ. But now he's being judged based on his works and, his, and his, what he has done, and the books are being opened. Omniscient God can tell you every single thing that you have ever done and will ever do. That's a real disadvantage 
if you're standing in front of him. So the advocates for platforms in hell, that there are levels, platforms in hell, and that makes me smile. Because it's a trap. If you were an advocate for platforms in hell, I'm, I'm delighted. I can't wait. And they suggest that there will be assignments based on what each person has done. In other words, there's a relationship between the platform that you are given and what you have done. How much evil you have done. That's the position. And it has a lot of support. A lot of support. In other words, they will say the amount of evil determines the level. Are they right? Can we agree that some are more evil than others? Is it fair to put the ones with the greatest evil at the same exact punishment level as those who had lesser evil? Is there lesser evil? Aren't these wonderful questions? One said, one laughs and goes, yes. The other one goes, oh no, these are not. Both are wrong. <laughs> okay. and, but if you adopt the platform position of the lake of fire, and again, I can't help but live and laugh whenever I say that sentence, because I know it's coming, then you're going to adore my reciprocal platform position, because what platform position do I have? That's right, I have the new city of Jerusalem platform concept. One trillion acres of gardens of Eden. One trillion acres of gardens of Eden. That's what I have. That's 1,500 miles high. Again, the space station is 250 miles high. Why so much volume? Is there levels in the new city of Jerusalem? Is there levels in hell? If there are levels in the new city of Jerusalem, then there will likely be levels in the lake of fire. Wouldn't you agree? There's symmetry. So, one has levels of the Garden of Eden. The other one has levels of condemnation and judgment. Is that the position? Again, if the lake of fire is level has levels, then surely, uh, don't call me surely, uh, we're talking about Genesis 1, 3, and 1, 4. The new city of Jerusalem will have levels. Because he separates the light from the darkness. Right? Over here is the darkness. Over here is the light. There's going to be a relationship between the two final destinations. Is the design similar? That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> Anyway, the subject results in the in the basis uh, of judgment, the foundation level of the Creator, putting all of humanity and the angelic host on trial. He's putting everyone on trial, man and angel. And what we're talking about is exculpation and uh, vindication, if you will, for the accountability procedure. Because, in other words. He's going to put everyone on trial and he has to be justified in doing so. He is justified in doing so. That again is the the vindication of his uh, accountability judgment, which is a redundancy. Which uh, becomes as always a discussion or becomes an altercation on the existence of will. This all boils down ultimately... To do angels and men have will. Do they? Because if they do, 
there's accountability. And if they don't, then the accountability is not vindicated. It's not, there's no exculpation. And to which, so that's how it resolves eventually. And we'll get to that in the 20th. But uh, I received a timely email-y thingy from Big John from Pennsylvania. Hi, Big John. Uh, he submitted Genesis 24:57. He said, you might like this. And he's a very deep, he, he's a, a student of scripture. It's really impressive. Um, but it, Genesis 24:57 is Abraham's trusted servant. Now I should say that Abraham is old right here. Very old. How old is he? He's old. And he takes, and he asks his oldest servant, Genesis 24:1. So as soon as I see very old and very old, I go, okay, what's really going on here? And as you know, the old Abraham sends the oldest servant to gather a suitable bride for the son Isaac. That literally happened. They're all named. We know who they are. I'm focusing on the old part of it. How old is a timeless triune God would be the question. How old is God? See, that is a bad question. An intentionally poorly worded question that I intentionally worded poorly so that you would be fooled by it. How old is God, the triune, timeless God? Anyway, the old Abraham sent the oldest servant to, to gather a suitable bride for his son Isaac. And obviously it's a triune verse. It's a dramatic theodicy. This literally occurred. But I have the Ancient of Days sends the Ancient of Days to gather a bride for the Ancient of Days. That's what's going on in 2457 uh, or 241 through 57. And notice that 24:57 and 58, they asked this question. So they said they came and they. What happened is the old, the ancient of days sends the ancient of days to get a bride for the ancient of days. I hope that made sense to somebody. And then when the ancient of days got there, he ran into a bunch of people and he said, "I'm going to take that woman if she, I'll take her for the bride of the ancient of days." Or Isaac, in this case, Isaac's portraying the ancient of days. The old servant is portraying the is portraying the ancient of days and. Abraham is portraying the ancient of days. So they said to him, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. We won't let you ask her. We're going to go ask her. Then they go and they call Rebecca and said to her, will, will you go with the old servant, the oldest servant? And she said, I will. What does she think she has? She thinks she has will. She can go, but she can refuse. She chooses to go. So you have to include her when you have a a will discussion. And when you get to Rebecca, then you get to go to the Pharaoh. They brought that up last week. And you have to define hardness of heart. I wanted to do that today. But time has me. I do not have time. Oh, we're off next week. That's right. We'll be back on the 20th of February. So enjoy your commercials. Because who watches the game anymore?